A very warm welcome. You're joining us here at Hyde Park on Adha Terana 24. Um, as Sri Lanka has received uh, the first tranche of the IMF bailout package, close to 3 billion US dollars, and now talking about how um, welfare should be uh, distributed among the most necessary, most vulnerable communi communities of society. We've also heard about how Pakistan has outpaced Sri Lanka in uh, having the fastest inflation in South Asia. With all this, I thought it would be uh, interesting to talk about uh, how Sri Lanka's social safety net should be um, addressed, how sh it should be um, designed so that all communities in need, the most vulnerable, will uh, receive benefits at large, and also how we can look at South Asia working together to overcome uh, these challenges. I've invited to our studios to join us um, uh, right here, joining me now, um, Dr. Priyanga Dunusingha, who is a senior lecturer at the Department of Economics and the head of Department of IT. A very warm welcome to you, Dr. Dunusingha. He's also uh, on the welfare board uh, committee member deciding on um, on welfare programs on welfare measures to be taken across the country and joining me virtually from Pakistan we have with us a renowned economist Dr. Nadeem Ulhaq former IMF resident coordinator who was in Sri Lanka a very warm welcome to you Dr. Nadeem thank you very much for joining us uh, virtually you. Thank you. He was former Minister of Planning uh, in Pakistan and uh, is also now the Vice Chancellor of the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. Uh, I'd like to start with you, Dr. Um, Nadeem. Now, we heard in recent times that Pakistan is facing um, a, a crisis, so to speak, in terms of the economy and has outpaced Sri Lanka's situation in terms of inflation. However, there are talks of a bailout and the IMF is saying that uh, debt assurances are necessary there. So how do you think now, given Sri Lanka's situation, while in crisis and overcoming this with, uh, with an IMF bailout just passed, how do you think we can work together and look at areas that the whole of South Asia can address um, in these economic imbalances? I think that's a very good question. Uh, first, Pakistan has got into this difficulty because Pakistan has lacked the capacity to make policy for the last 75 years. We unfortunately have never really developed a serious economic policy. We have been outsourcing our policy to the lenders, to IMF, World Bank, and various consulting, consulting firms run our policy, and that's a very important thing to bear in mind. We occasionally buy an economist from the IMF or the World Bank, like I came back, like a former governor came back, various people come back, and they survive a year or two, and then they're thrown out and eventually policy goes back to being outsourced. So there's no policy that we own, A. B, our policy is too geared to borrowing. C, we've got a deep political crisis. We, we are a people who never really care for economics. We are more worried about politics, and our politics is totally based on patrimony. We try and give people paternal policies. We try and give people handouts, and those handouts go out of hand, and eventually we end up into a deep crisis and we go running to the IMF again. The issue will never be resolved unless we develop an economic policy at all. The fourth important point to remember is we are a human capital exporting company to the country. We uh, educate people and we send them to the West. 
they go and contribute to the Western economy and not to our economies because we drive out the best people from our countries. So we lack the capacity, we lack the capacity to make policy, we lack the capacity to build businesses, and we try and make our economy work through a political process that, to that is totally corrupted, it will not work. And finally, what we try and do is we try and build, thanks to the consultants in the World Bank and the ADB, et cetera, we try and build an economy to copy the West, not to be original. So when you put all this together, we've got a deep economic mess that needs to be taken care of. And I don't think we're ready to take care of it yet. I don't think we've seen the bottom in Pakistan. And I hate to say it, probably in Sri Lanka too. This is just the beginning and we will see much more messes further ahead until we wake up and form a country that can make an economic policy. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for your opening statement there, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Nadeem. I'd like to turn to Dr. Priyanga Dunusingha. Um, you are on the welfare board, but, but, but before we talk about that, how do you analyze the situation here going forward for us? We are talking about an IMF bailout uh, first tranche. Yes, this is not sufficient to solve all our problems. Um, however, what is the way out now considering the measures that are taken and, and, and the policy measures that Dr. Nadeem just spoke of? How do you, um, are you, are you in agreement uh, with uh, what's necessary here? Yeah, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for inviting for the show. And uh, I think the uh, Central Bank of Sri Lanka uh, published its annual report uh, uh, 27th of April. And uh, in that report, basically, uh, Central Bank summarized the various policy measures taken in the short term or near-term policy measures taken in order to address the crisis uh, in 2000, early 2022. And uh, results achieved so far in terms of that, basically, we have seen that uh, inflation has come down. Uh, somewhere it was around 70% in uh, 2022, uh, September, October. Now it has come down to 35. Then uh, 35, I mean, we, we simply cannot, uh, you know, uh, satisfied with that number, but uh, still we could see some, uh, you know, uh, some downward trend, trend. And also we could see that uh, foreign, I mean, exchange rate has come down. Uh, or appreciated in recent month, uh, somewhere from two, uh, 370 to 320, 310. And also gradual increase in uh, foreign reserve we could see. And also, uh, even though the export sector, we have uh, witnessed some decline, we could see that foreign remittance as well as tourism, tourism sector, uh, some improvements there. And government has taken a number of measures. At least in the near term, we could see uh, we are, I mean, better than we were uh, some month ago. Uh, and uh, as uh, central bank also stressed, I think we have we have number of we have to take number of policy initiatives. Mm -hmm. in, in particular, what we have uh, agreed with the IMF and uh, such as increasing revenue, uh, rationalizing expenditure, then uh, reforms with respect to state-owned enterprises, then the social protection, and also debt restructuring. These are very much critical 
in uh, basically untapping the loan term growth potential uh, for Sri Lanka. In particular, I think uh, it, it will be a really a challenge uh, for Sri Lanka to how to achieve debt restructuring while mainti maintaining uh, financial sector stability in the domestic economy. Okay. So that would be the, the major challenge I think in 2023. Broadly speaking, we could see at least uh, you know some positive elements right now with the initiatives or the policy measures taken, mm -hmm. but lot to do in coming month, which are very much challenging. Uh, in particular, the trade restructuring and the, then re uh, reforms uh, with respect to state-owned enterprises. Uh, for that, we need to certainly support the government, whoever. Uh, I mean, whichever the party who is in power. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Nadeem Ulhaq, uh, I'd like to um, ask you now, I remember we spoke um, uh, some weeks back and you mentioned uh, about uh, the policy corrective measures that need to be taken in Sri Lanka to address this situation. Uh, we've, we've seen short-term uh, thinking, we've seen how uh, Sri Lanka fell into uh, this abyss. but. Uh, in terms of uh, policy corrective measures, do you think Sri Lanka has uh, um, initiated what is needed for uh, stronger mid to long term policies that will set the economy uh, on the right track? I think both Pakistan and Sri Lanka need to study Argentina, Mexico, Latin American countries, which began destabilizing like us and turned to the IMF and inflation first went up into double digits then into triple digits and then much further. I think we're heading in that direction and we really have to take a pause and think about it. To begin with, there are no easy answers. This, this feeling that we have that somehow we can copy the West, this has to go. This feeling that we have that somehow you can hire a consultant and get away with it and take a loan and get away with it has to go. Most important of all, we have to figure out our own niche, our own competitive advantage. What is our competitive advantage? And we never seem to think of it that way. We are not Europe. We are not a European country. We are not a, uh, the US. We are a small country. Both countries are very small. Both countries need to figure out how they can fit into the global economy. What is their competitive niche? What can they export? What can they attract in terms of capital? These are the critical questions we have to answer. And to answer those, we have to make sure that we employ the best, the best talent that we can find locally. This business of exporting our talent, of educating people to send them overseas and not having the best talent at home. This business of, for example, SOEs, you mentioned the state-owned enterprises, Sri Lanka, I checked the other day, you still have the same old state enterprises, we still have the same old state enterprises. They're bleeding, they're still bleeding. I mean, how can you have something that is bleeding? If our body starts bleeding, we check it immediately, we go to the doctor immediately, we go try and fix it immediately. How come we don't fix the state-owned enterprises? Secondly, even if we fix the state-owned enterprises, our public sectors are huge. Why do we need to give such a guaranteed public sector employment to people? I am against public sector employment. Thirdly, why are we building a social safety net like the West has done? Why can't we innovate? Where are the opportunities in our countries? We have checked. In Pakistan, for example, 64% of the kid, kids want to migrate. This is a survey result based on a huge survey that we've done. 64% of the kids want to leave the country. 
of the educated kids, a large majority of them want to leave the country. I think that tells you the story in itself. How can we make the country attractive for people to stay there? If your own people don't want to stay there, why should others come in? So I think that's the key thing that we have to talk about. And I used to talk about this a lot in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, I still don't know what use you make of the sea. You have a port, yes. But other than that, what use do you make of the sea? What is the blue economy in Sri Lanka versus the blue economy in Dubai, for example? So, I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves some very tough questions and we have to engage in a tough debate. And for that, our universities must be active. We can't have universities that are kind of broken, semi-literate, and producing people who are not fitting into the local economy and the best people leave. So I think these are more difficult questions than just saying, let's fix a little bit of the structure here and there. We're not a normal country that can fix a little bit of structure here. Right. Dr. Dunu Singh, now uh, with Pakistan's situation there, Pakistan is also going through a similar situation um, in terms of inflation, which is uh, now, uh, uh, which is which surpassed Sri Lanka's rate of inflation. But uh, how do you suggest that government embark on uh, relieving the burden on the people. You're on the welfare board. What are we? I'm not sure how far you can comment on that, but uh, what do you think are the measures that need to be taken right away in order to ease the burden on the people? We've been talking about Samurdi, and there are questions on um, how beneficiaries who are really not eligible, who have graduated out of the scheme, are still obtaining um, benefits. But there are the most vulnerable, the biggest hit population that is not receiving any welfare. Yeah, basically, if, uh, if I uh, am allowed to make a uh, correction, mm -hmm. I am actually a committee appointed by the Welfare Board mm -hmm. uh, to basically design the uh, benefit scheme right. uh, targeting poor people under the proposed social uh, protection scheme. Under that, actually, as you uh, very uh, correctly mentioned, uh, the the main uh, what we call the social protection scheme, Samurdi, uh, basically is criticized due to number of uh number of issues in particular uh, it is uh, alleged that uh, number of people who, who are who benefit actually who are not qualified but is still receiving samurdi and also there are uh, some number of people who are qualified but not receiving the samurdi benefit they are out of the program so uh, the committee basically uh, right now the cabinet has approved that basically uh, came up with a new design where uh, depending on the distance to the poverty line uh, the committee decided to basically uh, pay two-third of the distance to the poverty line to a household mm -hmm. accordingly I mean we basically estimated the the, the, the proposed uh, may propose monetary uh, subsidy program or the monetary scheme uh, based on the principle that the subsidy the amount a household will uh, will receive is determined by the distance to the poverty line mm -hmm. and two-third of that is paid to a household, so accordingly. How uh, do you measure that, if I may interrupt? We basically, we can uh, measure the uh, on on the basis of the calorie, uh, daily calorie requirement. We can measure the uh, uh, basically the in monetary terms um, the income mm -hmm. uh, requirement for a person, and accordingly work out for the household. Mm -hmm. And given the existing income level of the household, we can basically calculate the gap 
uh, in order to move out of the poverty or to be above the poverty mm -hmm. uh, poverty line. Mm -hmm. So accordingly, uh, I mean, we, uh, the government conducted a survey and uh, with the use of the data, uh, then basically uh, it was uh, calculated uh, the amount uh, required, the required amount for the uh, ultra poor household, then the uh, the modestly poor, and then the vulnerable, uh, so on and so forth. Accordingly, the proposed scheme uh, now fifteen thousand will be paid to a poorest household. The next, uh, uh, I mean, poor household, it will be eight thousand five hundred. Then the vulnerable, it will be 5,000, and the transitional poor, mm -hmm. that means those who get into poverty because of the economic crisis and the pandemic, they will be paid uh, 2,500. This will be for a three-year period, and during that period, there will be a graduation schemes where the poor people will be assisted with microfinance, entrepreneurship, training, education, and various programs, and it is expected that they could basically uh, enhance their economic status with those that uh, graduation program it does not mean it does not mean graduation mean you move out of poverty okay mm -hmm. uh, it will it, it will be difficult for example very uh, the poorest people that getting means the them furthest away from the poverty line which uh, that is someone who an individual or a family which will benefit with 15,000 rupees will be supported with all these programs but of course with the view of graduating them out of the poverty line. Not out of the poverty, but to enhance their existing, hmm. at least enhance their existing, uh, I mean, the economic condition, because it will be difficult hmm. sometime to get a person out of poverty within three year period when it comes to ultra poor, okay. because there are structural issues. Uh, as a result, it, it won't be, I mean, it, it, it won't be such easy. Hmm. But we, we, may, we may witness some, some number of people move out of poverty, certainly, but the graduation scheme will certainly equip them uh, gradually move, uh, I mean, enhance their economic status. But it's certainly um, a graduation from the 5,000 rupee benefit up to 15,000. But what of this uh, COPE revealed recently uh, after an investigation yeah. that some 33% of the current uh, Samurthi recipients are not eligible, which means they are not in, they don't fall within that criteria uh, to receive benefits uh, under a so social safety net. So what of them, how would you um, do away with these? Uh no, basically, uh, as we all know, uh, due to political affiliation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, number, successive government basically uh, decided to provide uh, Samurdi for their political supporters. Mm -hmm. I think it is a very uh, much, uh, uh, you know, uh, a known fact. Uh, right now, uh, with the new survey, uh, when data coming in, uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, easy uh, through a, uh, I mean, uh, what you call the, uh, through a computer system. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, you en enter such data and uh, the decisions will be made uh, based on their, by looking at their income, expenditure and other, uh, there are a number of criteria that need to be taken into account. Uh, depending on such criteria, the, uh, the whether the person, uh, I mean, uh, is a beneficiary or not, will be determined. Certainly, those who uh, may, those who uh, I mean, are not qualified, 
certainly can uh, basically get into the grievances committee and appeal uh, for the decision. But uh, this time, uh, you know, the selection process is a very much, uh, uh, a very much independent. Uh, I mean, uh, independent work, mm -hmm. uh, centralized, uh, centralized system, uh, basically uh, take care of that and. Uh, less no political interference simply okay. yes so this system will be uh, carried out and this uh, the, the selection process will be carried out under the supervision and the guidance of the committee and will there be gramaniladari uh, in no, involvement no, no no involvement politic political parties or the gramaniladaris they they are not uh, I mean, uh, they, they do not basically involve. Mm -hmm. They basically involve in providing information, necessary mm -hmm. information, in particular whenever, uh, when it comes to, uh, if, if people appeal, uh, up, you know, after knowing the final outcome, if they appeal that uh, they, they, are, they have, uh, they, they did not receive the benefit, then uh, in that context, the Gramaniladari and the other government official came in, uh, may, may come in, but uh, right now, uh, the decisions are made based on the data collected uh, by a survey, island-wide survey, right. which basically enter into a system. Mm -hmm. That system basically select the beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Nadim, um, now Sri Lanka plans to uh, spend some 206 billion rupees via uh, a revised welfare benefits under this revised program uh, targeting those who are truly in need of support. But we are also talking about handouts and other subsidiaries that are extended by the people. So how do you analyze this? You've worked in Sri Lanka, you've analyzed the situation in Sri Lanka years back too. Uh, and given the situation now, um, how do you think Sri Lanka uh, should work to move out of these subsidiaries uh, or uh, subsidizing rather, subsidizing certain products and services while also um, enhancing this social safety net for the most vulnerable people? I think the biggest social safety net that we forget is opportunity. Both in Sri Lanka and Pakistan, Poverty has declined enormously. I think we forget how much, if you take the calorie count index that the professor was talking about, calorie count index, Pakistan now, poverty is less than 8% of GDP. So the World Bank has actually changed the way we measure poverty, which is now going to um, a poverty scorecard to into going $2, now $5 a day poverty. So we can keep changing index, but the fact is poverty has declined enormously. Now, how, how has poverty declined? Let's look into that for a minute. Poverty has not declined because of welfare programs. Poverty has not declined because of smurti. Poverty has not declined because of government intervention. Poverty has declined because of remittances. Remittances is where the poor have helped themselves. They've left the country, sometimes in containers, sometimes illegally, taking a huge risk. Some have died on the way and they have sent back money to alleviate their family from poverty. So the key indicator is, I'm afraid, both Sri Lanka and Pakistan are wasting a lot of time and effort doing poverty surveys. But we have no survey on opportunity. A poor person can get this welfare scheme, but then what happens? What opportunity does that poor person have? Is there an opportunity to, for example, set up a business? 
I've been talking about in Sri Lanka and I've been talking about in Pakistan and I've got this framework going in Pakistan, it still doesn't work. Do they have the opportunity to set up small businesses? For example, kiosks, street vending. Where is street vending in Sri Lanka? Street vending happens all over the world, but we have severe restrictions on street vending. Again, small businesses, for example, doing anything small. What is the regulatory barrier? We looked at Pakistan. The regulatory barriers are huge. People can't set up a small business because the government wants to um, you know, regulate everything under the sun. So quite frankly, the regulatory barriers are huge. and We have to worry about opportunities. Why is it that our people want to leave the country, go to Dubai, send money back, go to Turkey, go to Malaysia, go to... I mean, I've seen Sri Lankans and Pakistanis in every part of the world where I go. They're doing jobs and sending money back. Why can't they have opportunity at home? So I think the government must spend a lot of time thinking about opportunity for the poor. At least as much time as it spends planning welfare. Unfortunately, we have an overgrown welfare system in Pakistan, and I'm afraid in Sri Lanka too, but a totally deformed opportunity system. Unless you have opportunity, you know, there's neither going to be growth, nor is there going to be any improvement in welfare. People are just going to get stuck on this, on these benefits. And then again, this thing about measuring from uh, the poverty line, people will try and report below the poverty line. So your service will also get contaminated. I think we have to really worry about the handout economy. Handout economies have not worked in the West. Do, will they work here? We have to think about that too. But, you know, we hate to ask ourselves tough questions. We follow what the consultant says and we do it. But our own tough questions, for example, what is the comparative advantage of Sri Lanka? Is Sri Lanka a tourist economy? If it is a tourist economy, where are your tourists coming from? Is Sri Lanka a tourist economy? Then why does Dubai get more tourists than Sri Lanka, even though Sri Lanka has better weather, better you know, history, better um, geography? Yet, Sri Lanka gets far less tourism than Dubai. So I think these are questions that we should ask. Saudi Arabia is getting ready for tourism in a desert. Is Sri Lanka ready for tourism? Okay, but Sri Lanka is too big a country to just be a tourist country. Can Sri Lanka export something? What is it that Sri Lanka can export? Sri Lanka used to export textiles. Sri Lanka used to export um, some fishing stuff, etc. Is that taking off? Is that not taking off? I think it's a tough question that we would ask. Again, if Sri Lanka is a tourist country, you were still conflicted about one thing when I was there. Are you still conflicted about it? About gambling, for example, about tourist entertainment. Do you want a tourist country like Pakistan thinks it's a tourist country, but Pakistan wants tourism and that is, um, uh, what do you call it, Islamic tourism. Now, if you want Islamic tourism, you're going to get a very small percentage of the world population coming in and they're going to spend a small amount of money. Do you want Buddhist tourism? What kind of tourism do you want? So, I mean, these are all quest tough questions that we have to ask ourselves. Um. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Ohak. Uh, now, uh, before we go in for a short break, Dr. Dunasinghe, it's very interesting uh, what uh, Dr. Nadim mentioned about uh, a survey on opportunity. Where Where is the opportunity for our people? So how do you think your committee um, is working towards this and how we can incorporate opportunities to enhance uh, the livelihoods of the poverty-stricken? 
Yeah, that, that is exactly what I mentioned that uh, along with this uh, cash grant, uh, government is planning to basically initiate a graduation scheme where assistance will be given uh, for uh, micro uh, businesses. Uh, training, entrepreneurship, and various handmade, uh, you know, uh, courses or initiatives will be uh, designed based on the geography and the area and the comparative advantage in that uh, particular, uh, you know, geographical areas. So it will be the task of the samurdhi officer. Uh, of that region to propose a scheme which he think is suitable to enhance the uh, livelihood of those uh, beneficiaries. So I think uh, it is not a new uh, thing as such. Uh, even in the 90, early 1990s, Sri Lanka had uh, under the Janasavya such a graduation scheme where number of uh, opportunities were created for poor people uh, by providing finance, by providing training, by providing uh, education opportunities for uh, kids uh, in those uh, households. So I think um, right now the challenge is at a time where the general economy is performing badly, how we can create opportunities for poor people is uh, really a challenge. Mm -hmm. So in such a context as, as uh, Dr. Nadim mentioned that um, right now uh, because of the migration is taking plain place uh, rapidly as well as the tourism is you know gradually booming. I think these will uh, create some opportunities for poor people but as he also rightly mentioned we need to think twice uh, about the various rules regulations that we have placed uh, preventing the start of businesses. Mm -hmm. um, I think in particular, uh, as he mentioned, street vendors and the other micro businesses, it is uh, quite difficult, even the tourism industry, it is quite difficult for poor people to get an, a chance to sell something to a, to a, to a tourist. In uh, Because we have done some research in the eastern part of Sri Lanka, actually the, the tourism, tourism sector is uh, you know, uh, to a greater extent, controlled by uh, some number of you know uh, businessmen or the uh, business companies. Mm -hmm. They even you know uh, basically uh, provide everything uh, to the tourist. We start with the water, water bottle and everything uh, without letting them to buy uh, stuff from uh, those local uh, you know shops and the other places. I think uh, that we need to certainly come uh, bring in new. Uh, changes into rules, regulations, uh, the way that we do businesses, in, if we are to really want to help poor people to graduate them, their living standards. Right. I think it's time we take a short break here at Hyde Park. We're in conversation with Dr. Nadeem Ulhaq and Dr. Priyanka Dunusingha. We'll be back shortly.
Welcome back. Um, I'd like to talk to Dr. Nadeem Ulhaq, a former resident uh, representative of the International Monetary Fund here in Sri Lanka and a former Minister of Planning uh, in Pakistan, now Vice Chancellor of the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. Uh, Dr. Nadeem, um, you were talking about our welfare schemes, how Sri Lanka and Pakistan are facing this situation, but um, the tax burden, that's something I, I really like to talk about and hear your opinion on where talking about an increased tax burden here on the people and, and the middle income um, uh, population, that, that segment of society hardly hit as well. Um, what is your analysis here? These are uh, some recommendations given by the International Monetary Fund too. Does this augur well for the economy? Look, the IMF, I worked at the IMF for 30 years. The IMF has a standard prescription that it gives every country. And of course it will, because when you're in trouble, let's say when you are in an emergency ward, supposing you've broken your leg or something, the emergency doctor will tell you to lie down and do nothing because there's nothing else that's possible. He will tell you to put your leg in a cast, maybe even get an operation, but once you get out of the emergency ward, you have to look after yourself, you have to go through the pain, and then you have to rebuild the health in your leg. The problem in, that in, in, in our countries, especially Pakistan, is that we, and maybe South Asia in general, I'd say, South Asia in general, we are not a people, India's waking up somewhat, but not fully. We do not give economic policy or economic welfare due importance. For us, especially in Pakistan, religion is far more important. In India also now it's becoming, religion is becoming far more important than economics. Sri Lanka is roughly the same thing. We, For us, politics is far more important than economics. And then we've got a very arrogant politics. We've got a problem. The next thing is important thing is we keep doing the same thing. As the professor just said, that we have done these welfare schemes before. We have asked officials to plan out micro enterprises and put people to work on those. I'm afraid we have to break the past. Yes, officials tried to run these schemes. No, officials can't do it. I'm afraid our official system has failed. Let's accept it that the system of bureaucracy that we've got, where we tell them to do development things, is not efficient, not capable of leading the system. Asking them to do things is throwing money down the drain. Ask them to, asking them to provide education is throwing money down the drain. We really have to think anew. Tax, IMF will say, give more tax. And of course, you have to tax more because you've taken on a huge amount of debt. I think let's begin. My now telling our governments, please don't borrow any. Forget borrowing. We have to reduce our debt over there. And it won't be easy. It won't be done tomorrow. It'll take 10, 15 years to reduce our debt. But that'll only happen if we agree. Guys, you can't borrow anymore. If you borrow anymore, please tell the people what you're borrowing for. If you want to build a road, we need to know clearly whether the road is necessary or not. We, we are building more infrastructure than is required. Should we build a new port? Why should we build a new port? These are, again, very tough questions that have to be discussed very carefully. On the taxes, we are in a very strange situation. You tax more, people will take their money out of the country. It's, a, it's now a globalized world. Money doesn't stay put. So you have to make sure that your tax system remains low and competitive. Like Dubai has no income tax. We have to make sure, make sure we realize Dubai has no income tax. Dubai is a tax-free haven. 
we have to create a tax-free haven. I think, quite frankly, Sri Lanka should be a tax-free haven. Why should Sri Lanka tax so heavily? But if you want to build a welfare state, you have to tax heavily. So, again, I come back to this. Sri Lanka, especially in Pakistan, so Pakistan has to ask ourselves, for example, what kind of defense can we afford? You have to ask yourself, what kind of a welfare state you want to build? Are you a welfare state or are you a Dubai? That is your competitor. Are you a Singapore? That is your competitor. What do you want to do? So I think, quite frankly, we do not challenge ourselves enough. We take the consultant reports and we say, let's start doing welfare. Let's start doing this. Let's start doing that. No. Time to take a pause and say, let's start doing something different. I would actually, it'll take some time. I'm working on it. I've developed this in Pakistan. We want to take five years to reduce our tax rates. We want to reduce our tariff structure down to almost nothing, open out our economy, and we want to reduce our tax rates to such that people find it attractive to come back to Pakistan. But that can only happen if we deregulate the economy. Right now, the regulatory burden on this economy that we've calculated is 45% of GDP, and that's only partial calculation. The regulatory burden is far more than the tax burden. We've calculated the footprint of the government. Professor Saab, I invite you to do this calculation for Sri Lanka. The put footprint of the government in Pakistan is 70 to 80% of GDP. Okay. So I ask you, are we a socialist country or are we a capitalist country? Have we made up a mind? I think Sri Lanka has it. Pakistan certainly has it. Certainly some food for thought. I think uh, interesting comments by Dr. Nadim here. Uh, do we really want to be a Dubai or a Singapore or do we want to look at being a welfare state? Um, Dr. Dunusingh, now while we're talking about taxes, a tax-free country or anything, I'd like to turn your attention here to income taxes and the middle-income population, there have been protests mm. widespread uh, about higher taxes, burdening the people um, with higher prices as a result. But again, the professionals are also significantly hit, uh, whereas the middle-income um, population uh, seems to be thinning here because their uh, income is being eroded as a result. And the question is, is the middle-income uh, po population, the segment of this uh, society, spending or paying taxes to support ailing state-owned enterprises? Uh, university students who continue to um, uh, go to the streets to protest, or is there some meaningful, useful um, venture of the government that these taxes uh, flow into? Yeah, basically, I think uh, historically, historically in the sense, uh, since to early 2000, we failed to basically increase the direct taxes uh, in line with the increase uh, in per capita income. For example, uh, uh, relative to GDP, we had a 20% uh, tax in uh, tax revenue was 20% uh, in 1995 uh, relative to GDP. Now, but that time our per capita GDP was uh, 720. US dollars mm -hmm. and it increased uh, when it comes to 2019 it increased to uh, per capita income in increased to uh, around 4000 but our tax income uh, relative to GDP declined around 10 to 11 percent 20 to 11 percent mm. per capita income has increased from 700 to uh, around 4000 now this is you know uh, somewhat uh, I mean uh, really opposite uh, you know, the, it has worked out opposite 
direction. Generally, what we should uh, witness, we, want, we, we must wit witness that uh, you know, uh, tax income to increase and the system to be more efficient mm -hmm. and the tax compliance to improve. All these things and also, uh, I mean, there are the share of uh, indirect taxes to come down mm -hmm. and direct taxes to increase uh, with the economic development. Mm -hmm. But none of those happen in Sri Lanka. That means there is a uh, really a, the in inefficient system. We, we continue to have an inefficient system and we fail to improve, uh, in, in particular digitalize the tax collection system and collection of information and integrating system in such a way that we could easily identify the taxpayers and uh, we utterly fail. That is a one side of the story. The other side of the story actually when we pay tax, we basically collect taxes uh, right now mostly from the pay taxes that mean from the uh, public and private sector workers mm -hmm. but finance as the Dr. Nadeem mentioned uh, welfare uh, measures, uh, free health, free education and also other welfare benefit number I mean we are overburdened with to a great extent overburdened and also we provide some you know uh, some subsidies uh, low electricity prices low water prices the transport prices all uh, those areas also we have uh, again subsidized mm -hmm. we provide fertilizer free of charge and various uh, social services are offered uh, you know free of charge or at a lower uh, lower um, uh, prices uh, right now uh, because of the this current economic crisis we have uh, adjusted prices offered by, I mean uh, prices of services offered by state-owned enterprises but actually we as Dr. Nadim also mentioned I think something that we really need to think whether can we move uh, go ahead with such a uh, you know welfare state who can basically finance it and what would be the ultimate outcome of such uh, you know higher taxation and whether the you know um, the basically finance move out of the country businesses and the experts right now we could see that a lot of professionals are moving out one uh, reason sometime they cited uh, is the higher taxation but I think most important thing is to uh, make this uh, taxation uh, fair, uh, convert it to a fair system. Right now, uh, actually, uh, we know that uh, there is a sizable uh, segment in the society who are eligible to pay taxes, but they do not. Mm -hmm. And also, those who pay also pay less than the due amount. Actually, the system is maintained by the, you know, corrupt officials as well as the uh, tax you know the consultant and the some to a some extent politician well, three of I mean those uh, people are um, you know one way or the other um, cooperate each other to maintain a, a system which from which they can certainly benefit mm -hmm. for officials and the tax consultant they can earn extra money or through various uh, you know illegal means and for politician they can basically get finance for the campaign financing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So, I think we need to introduce required I mean uh, sophisticated systems in order to uh, you know uh, make sure that the uh, eligible people pay taxes and the due amount is paid and uh, the uh, we, we I mean the system which could basically identify the uh, the people who are eligible. Right, Dr. Nadim, you spoke about uh, competitive advantage, uh, a competitive advantage that our part of the world, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, has. That we're not the West, and we have our own advantages here. Um, when talking about a South Asia more um, integrated and a South Asia that works to overcome our challenges, what are the opportunities? here especially now when uh, two of uh, South Asian economies Sri Lanka and Pakistan are uh, struggling to overcome crisis balance of payments crisis and then um, in Sri Lanka here we are talking about export economy industries manufacturing industries that uh, propel an export economy so we have more foreign exchange uh, flowing into the country but a sustainable way to come out of this? How do we look at greater integration among our countries when there are other blocks that have actually uh, overcome their own challenges by working together? I think you put your finger on it. We live in a bad neighborhood. That's a fact. Somehow, India and Pakistan can't settle their differences. And uh, that's a huge conversation that I don't think we can get into here. But Yes, India and Pakistan need to settle their differences and need to work together and need to put the past behind them. This you know, 2,000 years of history is haunting us and we have to get out of this history. Everybody has a history that's you know, got all kinds of blood and all kinds of problems in there. Most people have transcended their history. Look at Europe. They had two of the bloodiest wars in history. They've transcended their um, you know, history. But India and Pakistan somehow cannot do it. So it'll take maybe two or three generations before we can do it. And the same thing for uh, Sri Lanka in a much smaller way, because you uh, also cannot seem to get rid of ethnic tensions. Uh, ethnic tensions exist everywhere. Other countries have solved their problems. We can't. But those tensions also translate into economics. So India and Pakistan don't trade. Because India and Pakistan don't trade, SARC can't take off. So yeah, it's a huge, huge issue. And we can't solve it. Um, of course, it has a problem, but that all the more reason why we need to reimagine ourselves. But the professor gave a very good analysis of the way politics works in this country and how fiscal um, expenditures expand way beyond reason. We really need to, and this is where leadership comes in. Our leadership is not capable of help having an open conversation with the people. Even Imran Khan, who has turned out to be one of the most important popular leaders in Pakistan, I should say, um, he is not having a conversation with the people. He's having a conversation with the people about the past. He's trying to redefine Pakistan through Islam, not trying to define Pakistan going forward. What is the future Pakistan? What should the future Pakistan look like? What should the government commit to the people? The trust between the government and the people has broken down. We've done a survey. It shows the people of Pakistan don't trust the government at all. People of Pakistan don't trust government institutions. I'm sure if you do that in Sri Lanka, Professor Sabayaji, you do it, you will find the same thing. The government has to talk to the people, not just give handouts. Giving handouts is a colonial method. We have to get out of that. 
all leaders talk to the people and explain to them what can be done. We have to tell the people that these outmoded measures of free education, free cheap quality education that gets you nowhere is useless. Free cheap quality health goes nowhere. Free cheap subsidies to businesses, enterprises creates nothing. Pakistan gives out about, um, if I remember right, two trillion rupees worth of subsidies to businesses, which is a joke which is absolutely incredible. We should not be giving out sub such subsidies. We subsidize cars, we subsidize fertilizers, we subsidize so many things. You do the same. So we have to get out of this business. We have to reimagine the government. The government is not the people's, as the colonials used to say, mother-father. The government is not my mother-father. We don't have a patronage system. We need to develop a modern system, a modern system where the government is efficient, capable of making policy that will allow all of us to work. Not telling us what to do, but giving us a framework in which to work. I always use the cricketing analogy. The cricket rules allow us to play cricket. They do not, they're not based on getting permissions. If I am bowling or batting and I need a permission, then I can't play cricket. So the government has to go back to giving us good rules, allowing us to work, giving us a justice system, give us, giving us a system in which we can do business, in which we can run around and make money and export. But if the government doesn't do it, then they can't even collect taxes. When they can't collect taxes, they want more and more taxes. And down goes the social contract and more and more fund programs. And eventually, mark my words, we used to joke, I, when I was in the fund, I used to joke with my Argentine Mexican friends that our inflation is 11, your inflation is a few hundred percent, and look how, better, how much better we are. But there was a little underlying feeling we we're going to get there. And as you can see, we have slipped from 10, 11 to 40, 50, 70 percent. What's going to happen next? I'm afraid we're going to go to three digits, maybe in four digits, maybe five digits, unless we can wake up and say, look, guys, the old model is not working. The old model has failed us. We have to create a new model. What the new model is, we have to debate. We have to debate endlessly what the new model is and evolve it. And if you're not willing to do that, this business of buying a consultant report from the IMF or the World Bank and trying to implement it is a joke. That has not got any country out of trouble. It won't get us out of trouble, too. Right. Thank you very much for those comments. I think the final few minutes, Dr. Durasinghe here, your comments to add to Dr. Nadim's remarks as well, but at the same time about our economic reforms agenda. Um, whether, whether there should be significant uh, support coming in from the people or the government should relook really at these reforms because we see protests. We see thousands of lives of students on hold because paper marking is uh, on hold. And then we see other uh, essential services that uh, go into a standstill because of um, protests. But of course, laws are being brought. But uh, I know this is a broader mm. question, but uh, if you can address it within these uh, last few minutes. Yeah, basically, I think uh, what we have seen, I mean, compared to uh, past uh, few months, uh, we, we can see that uh, broadly uh, people, uh, basically the general public, then the trade union and other political parties broadly uh, they, they have uh, started supporting in particular the IMF program mm -hmm. the policy uh, reforms that should be carried out under the programs are supported broadly by those uh, uh, different stakeholders but uh, uh, I mean uh, it is quite uh, uh, we, we cannot really predict 
uh, how uh, I mean to what how long such uh, supports uh, will be available in particular when it comes to uh, key areas key reforms such as uh, state-owned enterprises and also uh, uh, some of the areas like debt restructuring, in particular the domestic debt restructuring uh, and also with uh, with respect to uh, liberalization of uh, you know uh, trade services and entering into some trading agreement with other countries mm -hmm. and also when uh, reforming existing labor laws uh, so it is uh, no, not clear uh, to what extent such supports will long last but uh, certainly support is required that is what the central bank government also emphasized uh, this year uh, saying that failure to get provide such support for uh, uh, economic reforms uh, would uh, end up with uh, you know perpetual bailout uh, get into a perpetual bailout situation or basically endless external borrowings mm -hmm. so they, th those are some of the you know uh, i mean um, uh, outcomes mm -hmm. of our failure uh, to uh, basically carry out necessary economic reforms i certainly agree with dr nadim i think uh, a number of uh, very interesting uh, uh, points were raised uh, that are very useful in the context of sri lanka also in particular to think about the old economic model right now to a some extent we could see even though we say open uh, private sector led economy in sri lanka we can to a some extent we can say economy run by a number of mafias are right now operating in sri lanka you could see that uh, egg producers uh, you know association you can see various association consisting small small producers they are the association set the price Nowhere in the world this happened. It is a monopoly. I think we should reform the uh, economy in order to make it more competitive. Right. Thank you very much for your time here. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Nadim Ulhaq for joining us virtually from Pakistan amidst your busy schedule. Um, former IMF resident coordinator who was based in Sri Lanka, now the Vice Chancellor of the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics and a former Minister of Planning in Pakistan uh, and has been contributing significantly uh, to Sri Lanka's decision making in terms of advice um, for uh, the uh, reforms agenda. Thank you very much, sir, for your time here. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Priyanka Dunasinghe, Senior Lecturer of the Department of Economics of the University of Colombo and the Head of Department uh, for IT um, and a committee member appointed by the Welfare Board to decide on uh, how welfare measures should be taken to address the vulnerabilities in the community. Thank you very much, sir, for Thank your time you. here. And we'll see you again next week at the same time here at Hyde Park on Other Therana 24 to discuss on uh, significant uh, topics of and issues that need solutions to the Sri Lankan economy and the way out of this crisis. Have a pleasant evening. Good night.